Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. This month, we are going to be talking about sex, sex and intimacy, and I've sort of, I've, I've done a bunch of interviews on this and I'm excited to bring you sort of different perspectives and different topics around sex and intimacy. Um, and I think this is a really, I mean, it got, it's such an important topic, right? <laughs> We're talking about marriage. Hello. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to bring in sort of all different points of view on this and different research and uh, different experts is because, you know, I see so much. Um, and talking to my clients and in my Facebook group conversations about sex and intimacy and what it really is. And, um, I mean, what intimacy is in general, right? I mean, I think that one of the, one of the things that I hear a lot and I think I've experienced also as a woman is that in many ways, women view sex as an extension of the intimacy that's already been created. In long-term relationships, we often use sex as a way to, to sort of falsely create that intimacy in the short term. <laughs> but ultimately, in long-term relationships, we are inspired and we want to have sex when we've when there is a level of intimacy. And I think that often men see sex as a way to create the intimacy. And there's no judgment about that, but I think it's really important that we recognize that difference, right? And I think recognizing that difference is, is vitally important. And it's really important to, I think, for women to also understand. And I'm going to say this. <laughs> I don't want you to hear me. No one is entitled to your body. And I will say the amount of sex I've had in my life that I didn't really want to have or that I felt like I was obligated to have or I, you know, should have, I should want to have, I, I can't even count. I can't even count. And I know that for myself, my, my promise to myself, especially since sobriety, because I also had a lot of drunk sex <laughs> that I thought I wanted to have. And then I woke up in the morning and was like, I totally did not actually want to have that. Right. I was not in a frame of mind to be able to fully consent. And I'm not saying that I was taken advantage of, but it, I took it. I was not in my right head for my own, my own consent. So especially in sobriety, I have been very clear that I will not have sex. I don't want to have, and I will not have sex that doesn't feel good to me. I don't choose. I don't actively choose. And it's been a, you know, it's been a really interesting journey. I've actually only had sex with one person in sobriety. And, you know, that wasn't even all that intimate, but it was super fun. <laughs> and that was my choice at the time. So TMI, there you go. So anyway, so we're talking about sex and intimacy, and we're going to kick off this month with Dr. Joe Court. 
And Dr. Joe is a licensed sex and relationship therapist. He is trained in sex therapy and Imago relationship therapy. So, you know, I'm, you know, we've already done a whole podcast on Imago with Dr. Sarah Shevitz. So you know my feelings on that. And Dr. Joe specializes in working with sexual dysfunction, relationship concerns, and with individuals identifying as LGBTQ and presenting issues. He is the author of four books, <laughs> um, and he's a blogger for Psychology Today. And, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to him was about this idea about, you know, what is a sex addict? That was sort of like my primary question for him. And of course, the conversation went into um, sort of wonderful and surprising places that I never anticipated. And this, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was, okay, so I, I see this a lot, right? Where somebody gets caught cheating and then they're, they claim to be a sex addict. And now we have to be, now we have to sort of set our feelings, feelings aside about the fact that they cheated because, oh, you know, they, they have a disorder or they have a, um, whatever, right? Um, a disease. And so now we have to be like really, we have to be patient while they get their healing and while they go to a program and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I think that sometimes that's legitimate. And I think also sometimes it's a really fucking poor excuse. Um, and so that was the conversation I wanted to have with Joe and, and started off with. And I think for some people, it's legitimate. Some people are sex addicts and it does come out. Um, and then some people use that as an excuse. Like, why was I so compelled to cheat when in my, when in my brain and my heart, I would never have been that kind of person or something like that. There must be something wrong with me. You know, I would say, maybe not. <laughs> There's probably nothing wrong with you, but, you know, take responsibility for the cheating. And I think that that'll go a lot further. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation that I could have by myself in another episode. But for now, we're going to let Dr. Joe Court take center stage. Dr. Joe Court, thank you so much for being here and to agree to talk about this incredible, uh, I think it's going to be a really rich conversation all about sex. Yes, but it's important to talk about. Sexual health conversations are important to talk about in couples and individuals all over with teenagers, with children. It's important. Everybody. I have a 14-year-old, by the way. So this is really this is really present in my life right now. Let's yeah, say. yes. Yeah, all right. <laughs> a 14-year-old boy. And I love that you actually, this is a distinction that I heard when I first heard you on my dear friend Jennifer Hervitz's podcast, where you were talking about the difference between sexual health and what was it? Was it the sexual and health? healthy se and healthy sexuality? Talk about that. That so when you say yeah, so when someone says healthy sexuality, that implies a binary. So that means that there's unhealthy sexuality, and then so we have, then somebody has to decide what's healthy and what's not. Who decides that? A spouse, a therapist, a religion, a culture? So instead of making it about good or bad, we talk about sexual health so that it, it implies better that it's being more sex positive and letting the person determine it for themselves. I, I love that. I love that distinction. I sort of like stopped when I was listening to that this morning. I was like, oh, oh, that's really fascinating, right? Because there's so much judgment around sex. So much judgment. Now, let me just make a caveat because people will hear, well, wait a minute now. What about rape? What about, oh, you know, sex yeah. with children? Okay. Okay. That's non-consent. That's not sex. 
That's not sexuality. That's power, control, humiliation, force. That's not consent. So I want people to hear that when we're talking about sexual health, it's all about consent and the decision about whether it's between two adults, whether it's good or bad or, or effective or not is up to the person and the couple. That's brilliant. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for yep. saying that. Yes, that's, uh, that, that is very important. Everything we're talking about, right, because rape is not sex. <laughs> right, it isn't. Yeah. Right. In any way, shape, or form. So here's a scenario I want to put to you, right? And this is what I, I hear this a lot in my practice. Yeah. Which is that usually a man, because I work with women, so that's just, but I, but I have, you know, friends who have gone through this, uh, male friends who have gone through this too. So it's anybody that their spouse has an affair and they get busted and then they say, I'm a sex addict. I need to go to treatment and then the person who has been wronged feels guilty for being angry, want, maybe even wanting out, right? Oh, but he's, a, but he's a sex addict, so now I have to put my feelings on the back burner, and now I have to actually, now not only do am I the victim of this, but now I actually have to be the helper in mm-hmm. the healing process. I have to put all of my feelings aside. So talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the harms. That's one of the harms of sex addiction. Uh, the industry is, first of all, has no understanding of sexual health. So I was a sex addiction therapist for 25 years. I have not been one since for the last 10 years, really. And uh, I got out of it because I became aware of sexual health. I joined an organization and became certified as a sex therapist. And then what I realized is that people were coming to me with all these sexual disorders, and yet I knew nothing about sex. So in the training, there's no understanding. There's no, the therapists, unless they've done their own, that gone outside the organizations themselves, have no understanding about sex. So so there's a difference between sex addiction, is it therapy or? That's what they call it, sex addiction therapy. Sex addiction therapy and sexual health therapy or sex therapy. Sex therapy, right. So sex addiction therapists are not sex therapists. They know nothing about sex, sadly. So so here's what happens in the treatment. So if somebody does say that they're a sex addict, what's sad is they don't work with a couple. They work with, they identify the sex addict as the a pathologized partner and the uh, other injured party as the one who is, you know, has to be em- empathized with. And so then they're separated, and it is unfortunate. I never thought about it through the lens you're saying, but it makes sense that then she, in in the situation with your clients, she then feels like she has to. He is he's sick, so she should stay with him because he's sick. And that, listen, yeah. the term sex addiction is thrown around like confetti in this country and in this world, and everything that isn't in someone's comfort level is is seen as a sex addiction, and that's what's sad. Okay. Yeah. It's sort of like same as narcissism, right? That you would think that there are, that the world is full of right. billions of narcissists. They're just right. assholes, really. Right. <laughs> right. 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 So um, we don't really have that many. Se- do you believe in sex addiction as a thing? Like, do you think that there are sex addicts? Not at all. Zero. In fact, there's no research or science that confirms this, and so much so that it never made it into the mental health category. So in the DSM, they rejected it. Nope. And in the ICD-11, what you're going to hear is called compulsive sexual behavior, and they have put it under impulse control problem, not addiction. So we do not look at it as an addiction. It's not seen as one. I did not know that at all. Yeah. That is fascinating to me. Okay. So what do you see? What the people, so like, let's say 
I mean, I know somebody who was, it was, it was, it was a compulsion. I mean, it was insane. And I'm, you know, I don't know if he's doing it anymore or not, but I mean, he was, it was porn 24 seven and it was running to the store, running to target to get diapers and getting a, a hooker in the, in the car to get a blowjob on the way home. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was every day, multiple times a day. Like I've never heard anything. I've really never heard of anything like this. Yeah. It sounds pretty addictive to me. That's an extreme. Well, case. I mean, a lot of things sound addictive because the metaphor of addiction is you're putting yourself in harm's way. You, you're experiencing loss of control. You're um, it, you're continuing to do it despite negative consequences. But listen, if we if we look at many behaviors and many things about people's lives, when you're coming out in any certain way, whether you're coming out gay, let's say you're coming out as a sexual being and you've inhibited yourself for many years, you're coming out as a new identity. It starts interfering with your life and you start having problems. So the term addiction, it doesn't work because it boxes people in and it do, it's like saying nervous breakdown. So are people going to be certified nervous breakdown therapists? What the hell is a nervous breakdown? When a client says it to me, I'm like, I have no idea what that means. You're going to have to unpack that for me. Right. So sex addiction is the same way. We do see people who are compulsive, but every single person who's engaging in these behaviors has a completely different reason for why they're doing that. So I would need to know more about right. that person. Got is he it. in the wrong marriage? Is he not attracted to his wife? Was he sexually abused? Does he just like pain for sex? Does he have a fetish and a kink that he, that he wants to scratch that itch, but he doesn't want to do it with his wife? I mean, the list can go on and on. It can, it can go on. And, this, and in this case, there's, the answer is yes to a few of those. Okay. So what do you say to a person who has cheated and then they're like, I'm in a, I'm a sex, even someone who's cheated once and someone tells them, I don't know where they get this information from a therapist or something. And they're like, Oh my God, I'm a sex addict. Forgive. Me. I'm a sex yeah. addict. I'm going into treatment now. Yeah. Well, so I, I would say to them that we need to figure out what led you to engage in this behavior. Yeah. You made choices. These weren't choices that were made outside of you. They were made inside of you and it feels foreign to you. So I understand why you're using a label to try uh-huh. to understand this for yourself, but I'd rather help you understand why you're made, why you made this decision and, and what drove it. And so I, I want people to be accountable for their decisions, even if they didn't know why they did it. Yes. Yes. And then to the other person, how do you, how do you deal with this in couples, in couples work? I see, I'll tell you what I see more of in my office is that, yeah. and I, I see more heter- mixed sex couples where the wife turns to her husband and says, uh, she finds her porn, let's say, or she, she understands she, he has an affair or whatever. And she'll say, you better be, you're either a pervert or a sex addict and I'm not staying married to a pervert. So she wants him to be a sex addict so he can get the help he needs and then move on. And that is a bad design because first of all, she's judging his sexual interests, right? Now he made some bad decisions, but his sexual interests might be very important to understand. And maybe there's something around sexual health conversation. This couple needs to have around that. I think that, and this this is fascinating, right? Because underneath all of this, is the fact that we don't have really healthy conversations about sex really almost ever, right? Like we get into relationships with people and we start having sex with them and it's either satisfying or not satisfying, but it's a very, I think, sadly, it feels like it's a very unique relationship where you can actually have an open dialogue and really talk about it. But even then we're leaving out things outside the margins, right? As like our sexual fantasies and proclivities that may be not acceptable, right? Going back to the good or bad. 
Yes. And so then when we're, when we, what you resist persists, <laughs> right? So talk about that, right? There's this, there's this whole conversation that we are not having about sex in our relationships as we get into them, before we get into them. Yes. Right. right? So I feel like mixed sex couples could really learn lessons from gay male couples and lesbians because they do talk about it beforehand. It's in, in gay male ads with each other. They're, they are saying right in the ad, this is what I'm looking I'm for a top, erratically. I'm a bottom. I'm, yeah, I get know. into this. I get into this fantasy. I get into that fantasy. Straight couples don't do this, right? right. And right. so and even when I ask my couples, you know, are you monogamous? Are you open? Are you polyamorous? Are you monogamish? You know, a little bit open. Even when the couple monogamous. tells me they're monogamous. Yeah, that's Dan Savage's word. Oh, Even when that. couples tell me they're monogamous, I ask them, have you negotiated your monogamy? And they look at me like I have two heads. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? They'll say, and I'll say, well, can she use a vibrator? Can he masturbate to porn? Can you have cyber sex with somebody? Can you flirt with somebody on Facebook? Can he send a dick pic? Can she have a, an emotional affair that from some high school that never happened, but it's only going to be on Facebook. And one partner will say, well, no, we're monogamous. And the other partner will say, absolutely, I think that some of that is okay. Right. So they have an implicit contract, not an explicit contract. How do you recommend that couples actually create these? Because there are things, there are things about in that, that like, I would never think to ask. I would never think that we're going to have a conversation about whether it's okay to have a cyber relationship or whether it's whether it's okay to have an emotional affair right yeah, like right and but you're right right for some people that's perfectly fine right for me i am i do feel threatened by porn it's not that i feel like it's cheating but i feel i feel threatened by it i and this is my own shit it's from my own history it's also being mm -hmm. i think being growing up as a woman in America and not feeling good enough. And then right. to being told you're not good enough, being right. told we're not good enough, the messaging right. all the time that we're not good enough, that our bodies aren't enough, that, you know, all of this, we're not airbrushed, we're not this and that. And so then there's my husband and he's off, you know, masturbating to porn every night and sometimes not having sex with me, mm -hmm. I'm not okay with that. Right. <laughs> like I don't feel okay with that. Or I feel threatened. Yeah, I'll tell you what's a similar argument happens in my office. Men feel threatened by women using their vibrators. So she might be masturbating and she he's like, my penis is available 24-7. I could have food poisoning and coming out both ends of my body and I am available 24-7. So right. she feels replaced by the porn. He feels replaced by the vibrator. And it's not about either thing. And I always tell therapists, if you jump in, good porn, bad porn, right, wrong, good vibrator, bad vibrator, you have lost a couple. That is not the issue. The issue is what is porn bringing up for you and what is porn bringing up for you? What is the vibrator bringing up for you? What is the vibrator bringing up for you? The discussion is an autoerotic sex life. Couples have a couple sex life, but they have a personal sex life within themselves. And I always say you need to, you need to have these conversations. What's okay? What's not okay? What are your erotic fantasies? Those are hard conversations to have. They're very, they are. They are because they're very confronting and they're very threatening. And I would say also that they challenge the level of intimacy that we think we have with our partner. Right. Right. Yes, they do. Like these are like the intimacy and the safety 
that you need to actually have with your partner to be able to engage in these conversations. And I would assert that the reason that we're not having these conversations is because we actually don't have the intimacy or safety that we think we, that we pretend to have. Right. Well, and people have assumed trust rather than earned trust in most relationships. Mm. And so that's not helpful because betrayal is going to happen. People are going to rupture the agreement because couples fight over contracts they've never made. That's a Marty Klein uh, sex therapist line. They often fight over contracts they never made. And so instead of, and it's going to happen, right? I've done it myself. So then you go, oh, you know, I thought I I talked to you about this. You agreed to it in my head. I did, we didn't really have this contract. So how can we back up and going forward, figure all this out? Right. I love that, that we ha- we fight over contracts that we've never made. We've literally never had this conversation. And the and- reason that people love the sex addiction label, by the way, is because people have discussed responses to their partner's erotic selves and to their own erotic parts of themselves. So the more disgusted you feel, the more you're going to blame your partner. I don't like that about what you're doing. So you're wrong. You're bad. You've hurt me with this. No, you know, you may feel hurt by it, but they didn't mean to hurt you with it. Let's talk a little bit more about our own erotic, our individual erotic lives, right? Like what that looks like. Cause I have a lot of, a lot of my listeners are are more conservative. Mm -hmm. Not all, but I do have a lot of conservative, right, conservative listeners. And I just sort of want to, I think religiously conservative, not necessarily politically. And I just sort of want to break down, like, what does that mean? What is a, your own personal erotic life? So um, we have a sexual orientation and we have an erotic orientation. Our sexual attraction, our sexual uh, orientation is to whom we're attracted, male, female, both bisexuals, multiple or neither, right? Someone who's, who's asexual. Then we have an erotic orientation, the things that turn us on, the positions we enjoy sexually, the things that bring us to orgasm. And that can be anything. And people often don't explore those things. They keep them private or they even keep them private to themselves because they're so ashamed of it. Like you right. said, what you resist persists. Right. I always tell people, this is a, a quote from a sex therapist, Jack Morin. If you go to war with your sexuality, you will lose and cause more chaos in your life than when you started. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's true about any aspect of ourselves, yes. right? not just our sexuality, any aspect of ourselves that we go to war with. Yes. You're in a, you're in a losing battle for sure. Now they have these nice websites and apps that allow you that when you said, how do you, how do the people have these conversations? It allows both partners to go into separately into the website and, click boxes on what erotically turns them on. The partner doesn't see. Then the other partner does it, their partner doesn't see. And then it spits out a form of only the things you've both agreed to. So then you have a good sense. Oh, she or he does like what I like. Oh, she didn't click this. He didn't click this. He's not into it. I may have to have a conversation with him about that. No way. What website is that? Is that like, yeah, I can, is that a therapeutic website or is that like open to the public kind of thing? It's open to the public and I can tell you, I can, so that you can give it to your clients. I, I don't, the one's called section air. I don't remember how to spell it, yeah. but I can tell you that after. Oh my sure. God. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. We'll get it afterwards and we'll yeah. put it in the show notes. That is fascinating. Is it only for yeah. sex? Uh, as far as I know, it's only for sex because those sexual health conversations and erotically exchanging, here's what I really get into, uh, couples don't do. So interesting. It's so interesting. You, it, <laughs> I want to ask you this. 
this is a great question that you, uh, I know your answer to this, but I want to ask it for you. Anyway, is porn a public health crisis for couples, Dr. Joe? <laughs> so porn is not a public health crisis for anyone, but but for, for sure in our culture, it's being thrown around that, that couples are being destroyed over porn. And I always say if that were true, then that would be true about gays and lesbians. Gay and lesbian couples are not struggling about porn at all. Some might, but for the most part, they're not struggling because they talk about porn. They have porn literacy in their relationships. It's not hidden. It's not a, it's not a secret. It might be private but it's not a secret. Straight couples don't talk about it. And by not talking about it, when you discover it, like you said, it feels threatening. Women feel often like that she's being compared. And I'm telling you that men, when they're looking at porn, they're, it's apples and oranges. They're into her and they're into other images. So let me give you an example. I had a client who had a couple who, uh, I call them the tiny waist couple. He, his erotic orientation, his sexual orientation was to women. His erotic orientation was to women with tiny waists. When he met his wife, she had a very tiny waist. Lots of sex, lots of a connection, lots of romance. They decided to get married. So they had babies. She had menopause. 40 years later, her waist wasn't so tiny. Their sex life was good all along. It was better at times, not so great at times. They worked on it. They didn't work on it. But it was never really a problem for anyone until she found his porn. Oh. And what do you think was in his porn? Tiny-waisted women because that's his erotic orientation. So then, she, of course, they come in and she says, you're a sex addict, this whole thing. And he says, I love women with tiny waists and I love your body too, because I love you. And she looks at me and says, what does this say about me? And I say to her, nothing. Mm. He loves your body. He loves sex with you. And he loves women with tiny waists. That's always been with him. It has nothing to do with you. It's hard to wrap around that. I mean, it really is. It really is, especially as a woman, right, who no longer has a tiny waist because of uh -huh. menopause. Mm -hmm. I would feel the same way. I would feel like I like I was being betrayed or that I wasn't good enough and that I mean, I think it's I think it's says something that this couple that he was they were still having sex, right? Because if they weren't having yeah. sex. Well, so here's the deal. If they weren't having sex, porn is so easy to blame, right? It's the best scapegoat. And you, if you make it about the porn, you're going to lose what's actually happening. There could be lots of reasons. He might have lost interest in her. They may have some kind of emotional incompatibility that's causing him not to feel sexy with her. It may be that he has anxiety. He has erectile disorder. Listen, Porn never says no. It never has a headache. It never judges you. It's always available. And this whole idea that people can even get addicted to porn, its not, your brain doesn't get wired to porn any more than it gets wired to uh, watching movies, you know, and, wa and watching sex in movies. What happens is the person's having an autoerotic experience. So men are getting used to their hand, their own timing. There's no anxiety watching porn. You can flip to the next thing, flip right. to the next thing. But what when about you're with a person? Yeah. yeah. No, go on. Finish that. Finish. Well, just that when you're with a person, there's a whole negotiation process and they may judge you and there's lots of anxiety. So it's that. If porn was really the issue, get rid of porn, your erections would return. That doesn't happen. So what about the idea that they become men become desensitized? And like, first of all, there's like the dopamine, like you're not actually, you're not addicted to po the porn, you're addicted to the dopamine rush that the porn creates, right? Same thing with video games. It's not about the video games. It's about the dopamine that we're, yes. that we're seeking. We're seeking that, that rush. 
Right. So there's no such thing as being addicted to any chemical in your own body. It's impossible to become addicted to that. You can become <laughs> habituated for sure. You can become habituated. And we, we don't, we're not bothered by people who love dop dopamine rushes that like to climb high mountains and possibly be killed or, or jump out of airplanes. But if the person does it naked and masturbating, now we got a problem. Right. What's going on that they want this dopamine rush, but we don't, we're all okay with it when it's non-sexual. But I will tell you when they go running, people go for a run every day. Right. And they get that <laughs> I love that. I forgot about that. But right. if they do it naked and masturbating, we got a whole different story about it. Right. Right. So, right. Okay. But, that's but everybody, everybody gets desensitized. Everyone for whatever reason, movies can desensitize you. Um, what they're calling women's porn literature. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I'm, I think I said it on her show on someone else's you show. Did. You did. Yep. I have a book. It's called the clitoral truth. And love it's it. all about it's all about the, I think it's actually literally about the, about the clit, but literature yes. is more, it, this is like, this is like a catch all. This is like a women's erotica, right? Is yes, right. And it's mostly romantic and it's very relational. And she's imagining a lover sometimes that's better than her husband, more handsome than her husband. And we don't say, oh my God, she's going to leave her husband. She's going to have an affair. It's a gateway drug. Literature is a gateway drug. And eventually she's going to leave him and want that, want to have another guy like this. But we do it with men because That's we. So interesting. I never thought about it that way, right? That that women's erotica is so accepted, and like, of course, we do this, right? But nobody has the same judgment. And Not I think at all. I do think that that we have a judgment against. I have I have a personal bias about this. That it's often very derogatory towards women. It shows women in a very sort of submissive light or in a, I don't know, I make this up because I haven't watched porn in a really long time. No, you're right. No, keep going because you're right. You're right about porn. There is a way that women are depicted in porn that, they're, that men are not depicted in erotica. No, but the women are the same in erotica. They, they're submissive. No, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. But she really wants it. And then suddenly he takes her, which is rivers. like a rape. Right. Yes. Uh, the right. biggest difference, I think the biggest difference that really gets people going is yeah. for women, erotica, it's relational. Yes. For men, it's not. Right. Men can have transactional sex and they, they, they want the devoid of courtship. They don't want to see all that. Right. Uh, and we're making sweeping generalizations. Of course, women could have that too. But women in general want to see courtship. Men are turned off by that when they're get, trying to get off. Well, we also, you know, we release a bonding hormone when we orgasm. So it's like, it is a different experience for us. Yes. You know, we, we yes. do bond in that way. Yes. And we, and men have that too, but testosterone also gets released and that's a distancing hormone. Right. So right. while women don't have big peaks of testosterone, men do. So that's, that's the difference. This is so great, right? This is why he rolls over after he comes and we want to cuddle. <laughs> like literally. <laughs> exactly. It's chemical. <laughs> it's right. Hormonal. Right. He's right. like, get me the fuck out of here. And she's like, come here. <laughs> there was a comic once and he was like, I think I'm going to get a pizza after. And she's like, that sounds great. He said, not with you. <laughs> when they were done. <laughs> how, how were heterosexuals ever made? <laughs> That's I know. Like, how are any of us straight? <laughs> it's I know. I, I most, say that same thing. Oh my God. I it's know. like the most Sisyphean, <laughs> like, impossible thing. I know. Ridiculous. That's totally crazy. So, okay. So, so we have these, we have these erotic differences, right? Yep. Like, let's say we take this sextionaire and we realize that like, oh, look, we only match on three things, but I wrote down like 50. What do we do? How do, so how here, do we, yeah. 
you risk take and you say, okay, I'm going to start to tell you some things that I get into and I want you to tell me too, but we have to have guidelines and rules. And I teach couples this. If you have a discussed response, own it. Don't make it about your partner. Don't shame them. Don't laugh. Don't put them down. It has to be a safe zone for you to show up. And it's okay to say, oh, I don't get into that. Or, oh, I'm kind of turned off by that. Or, oh my God, now I'm seeing you differently. Those things are all going to happen. But those have to be conversations that people can work through. But people don't do it because they're afraid of being shamed or they're afraid of the judgment. And they're afraid of their own their own judgment, really. Right, right. Because, because none of us few of us, you are, but few of us are having these conversations on a sort of a national scale. Like Dan Savage is doing it. Thank God you're doing it. Like people are having these conversations, but they're still very niched conversations, right? We're not talking about this on CNN. No, right. We're not. (laughs) Help us. I wish we were talking about anything but politics. Well, here's the problem in our culture. Um, First of all, there's very little sex education, but when there is sex education, it's only on sexual performance and functioning. Porn only focuses on pleasure. We need something in between. So we need something between fantasy and pleasure and sexual functioning and performance. We we don't have that. What, What would that even be? Like, I can't even imagine that. Well, the Unitarian Church has it. It's called OWL, Owl Our yes. Whole Lives. Yes, yes that's yes. what it looks like. Fast, I talk, and the Netherlands does this. The Netherlands teach children, t- young teenagers, all the way into ad- late adolescence, about, they, they show them porn in schools. Not a whole movie. They show them clips. They've been doing this forever. And they say, okay, let's stop. What, what's missing here? What, what, what's, what's realistic? What's not realistic? So that these kids have porn literacy and understand. It's not the porn. It's that we don't talk to kids about what's realistic and what's not. That's amazing. I mean, I've had this conversation with my son where I have said, listen, I, you know, I, here's what I, I need to talk to you about this. And, you know, I have to have these conversations in very like bite-sized doses because he's 14 and, and I'm his mom. I know. He thinks it's right. weird. But I, and I, I don't know if his dad's having, I mean, I have said to his dad, like, you need to have some of these conversations and I just don't know that he is. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not just going to leave it. So, right. I, you know, I, I say to him usually when we're driving, cause that's the safest time for us to have these conversations. And I'll say, you know, honey, I just want to talk to you about porn cause you're probably going to see some things and that's okay. Right. And I, and I'm, awesome. ca- I'm cautious to say like, it's okay, but you just need to know that it's not, it's not real. Like that's yes. just not how sex is and it's not how women respond to the things yes. that the men are doing and it's probably not the way that you want to go about doing it <laughs> right and i think it is important to have these conversations it is it is now i'll tell you this when you uh, there's another thing to teach couples and you may want to have her on your show this uh, this woman i'm about to mention she's a can- can- canadian therapist named amanda luderman and she's writing a book it is not published yet called erotic empathy Ooh. And I love those two words put together because her whole premise is you need to have erotic empathy for yourself and you need to have erotic empathy for your partner. And she's got an article online. I know, I think the name of it is called I am carrot cake. Uh, it's on medium. Okay. It's basically, uh, this is a great premise. I think women would love to hear this. If you don't like your body and you want to, you want to don't like your stomach or you don't like something that whatever, and you want the lights off or you want him to turn away and you want the position to be, and he loves your body exactly the way it is. Erotic empathy would be, can you enjoy your body through his eyes? Can you have empathy for him in a positive way and allow yourself to be completely seen even when you don't like your own body? There is something so, remember when I first got divorced, 
and I had lived in a marriage with someone who criticized my body for 10 years mm. and, you know, we had no sex life whatsoever. And when I got out of my marriage, I was 38. I was fucking hot. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I look back and I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, right? <laughs> right? Right, 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 right. And I would kill for that body right now. So I, but I had this, a friend of mine actually, who like made it his mission to make me see my body through his eyes. And he was just like, you have no idea how sexy and beautiful you are. And we entered into a sexual relationship. I mean, he's a, he's a dear friend still is, but we had like a, a sexual relationship for a few months because he was just, I mean, there was more to it than that, but I mean, essentially he was like, you need to know, you need to feel yourself in the way that I see you. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it was the most healing thing that happened after Mm -hmm. my marriage. I mean, it really was, it was so healing because suddenly I knew myself, I had been told that I wasn't a sexual being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly I knew myself as a sexual being and it really was, it was instrumental in my healing. I love it. How nice for you and how nice of him to be invested. And that really sounds like Amanda's work, really. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I'm definitely going to look her up. That's really cool. That's really cool. So how, how do we recover from infidelity? Like in this situation, like I, like I talked about earlier with, well, <laughs> with someone cheating, any, any yeah. infidelity, right? Well, and this is why you, they want to stay away from any kind of sex addiction work because they don't do couples therapy either. Nothing. They separate the couple out. They pathologize the one. They, they pathologize really both of them really by making her the victim or, or the par- injured partner the victim. So here's the deal. When the, someone comes in for infidelity with me, I don't use the words cheating or betrayed or victim. Those are very reactive words, powerful words that are disrespectful to, and they're, 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 uh, they activate the amygdala really. I say, you broke the relationship yeah, contract. Right. One of you is the involved partner and the other one is the injured partner. And if they come through my door and they say, and the injured partner feels very, very, I mean, they, they, they do go through a victim uh, period. I get it. They have been victimized. But if they come in and they say, sure. now I'm going, they don't say it this way, but if they engage in statements or behaviors like now I get to offend you from the victim position, that's not okay either. Hmm. Or one, because then that now I'm in a top down. So now I get to hurt you every day and every way because you've hurt me. That's a top down kind of rela- relationship, and I'm not interested in working with couples like that. I yeah. say that to them. You didn't get here. No. I, I get that one of you made a decision, broke the relationship contract, so you got here because one of you made a mistake or one of you made a decision. But the recovery has to be that you're both equals, or it's not going to work. Right. Yes. And I, you know, this is a conversation I have with my clients all the time too, which is that, you know, this is the harder work. It is the harder work to take your pain and anger and not throw it outward, but to process it inward and outward with a, with a trained therapist, with a trained professional, right? But rather than take your pain and anger and, and lash out and like, you're not going to get anywhere, right? This is not conducive right. no, to not. healing <laughs> in any way, shape, form, right? And, but it's harder work to own the pain and to own the spots yes. that have been yep. touched, right? The depth of the pain and what it, right? 
I always talk about this in, and this is, a, I know you're an Imago specialist too, right? From an Imago standpoint, like what's my wound that you're hitting, right? I know that if I'm having a really huge reaction to this, that's because I, it's my wound. If I didn't have right, that wound, right. I wouldn't be bothered, right? Because there are people that don't, you know, I love it when you were talking to, uh, just to Jennifer uh, Hervitz about this, where she was like, I love porn. I have no problem with porn. And I was like, I have right. such a problem with porn. And that tells me that that's my wounding. That's, that's my shit. Right. And I can own that. I can own the fact that I have like really, yes. you know, I have issues with porn and, but it's, and it's, it's nice my you issue. Can, you can own that where I see couples and they can't. And that's, what's really hard work. But I will tell you this, we have really good research and I've seen it in my therapy room a, a lot. If the couple does the work and they're willing to hang in there, the relationship can be better than it was before on the other side. But it's be, not because of infidelity. It's because now it has forced them to have sexual right. health conversation, get real, get honest, and do the work that you're supposed to do all along. Absolutely. I love, I love that. I love that because that's, exact, that's exactly right. It's the harder work, but it's the deeper work, and it's the work that's going to transform the relationship. Because if you sweep it under the rug, that's not really going to work either. You know, I have a lot of people who are like, he says he's sorry, and why because can't I just a, move on? Right. It's well, traumatizing. It's, it can be traumatizing. But one thing yeah. that I think is really bad in our culture, it's a cultural myth to believe that once you pair up and partner and marry, that everything's done. You close off all the apps. You never look at another person. You never jack off to someone else. You never read a, a literature and imagine another partner. You don't watch a romantic movie and wish that you were with um, Ryan Harris or whoever, you know? But Oh, Ryan Gosling is better, Gosling. right? Ryan Gosling is way better. But yeah, the thing is, we don't, and so that's the thing that gays and lesbians have better than straight couples is they openly talk about other people they enjoy and they, they, they can walk down the street because they both enjoy the same thing where straight couples don't. Men yep. feel intimidated too. Men are, if she's looking at his package, let's say, and she likes a, a different one, a bigger one, let's say, it can be very hurtful to the guy. Of course. Of course. I, I know that I had this with my, in my marriage with my ex where he was always checking out other women and it threatened me because he was always checking out women who had, for example, like big boobs and I didn't at the time. And I was like, and finally I was like, I was like, why are you always like looking at women with, with big boobs and it makes me feel bad. And he's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. I'm a boob man. And I was so threatened because right. I but didn't have boobs. And I was like, well, if you're a boob man, like, what are you doing with me? Right. And it actually, it, I mean, it did lead to me oh, getting a boob okay. job, by the way. Which I, on the one hand, wanted for myself, but I also wonder if I had been with someone who had been like, oh, but I, but like, I love boobs, but I love your body because he never told me he loved my body. He never behaved as if he loved my body. Right. He never complimented my body. He often criticized it. So I do wonder, like, if I had been with someone who was super complimentary, would I have gotten the boob job? Right, right. Or would you even been threatened by him looking at other women with bigger boobs if he had a secure attachment? That's what happens. Yes. The, the, the threat comes from having an insecure attachment with your partner. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And I was always in, very insecure physically, always, which is why. And he made you know, it. He's, he's, he contributed to that. Yeah. He, ab uh, he absolutely did. He absolutely did. But it's interesting because he tells me now he's remarried. And he talks to me about how he and his wife like check out other people and like, they're always like, oh my God, he's hot. She's hot. And I'm like, that's so much healthier than the marriage, than the sexual relationship that we had. And I'm thrilled that he yeah. gets that and that our kids 
get raised around that as opposed yes. to what we had, right? And like there was there was obviously some growth there or whatever, but I never felt safe enough to do that with him. Yeah. And I've been right. since been in relationships where I do feel safe enough to do that. And it's like, oh Good. wow, that was not that actually wasn't me. That it was my wound that was being triggered in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yes. Oh my God, so many complexities. I'm just wondering what if there's anything else that we haven't covered. There's so many questions. What are important things? What are just important things to know about? Okay, let's say we have a couple who's like mm, not not really connected this way, but but they're open. They're they're open to this. They go. They take this sex. What's it called? The sex section air. Section air. Uh-huh. We're gonna we're gonna get that linked in the show notes. Anything else that that. I mean, it's just really about opening a safe dialogue, right? Like, yeah. I mean, as a sex therapist, there's also something called sensate focus. Oh, yeah. Sensate focus, right? That. Is yep. really nice. Yeah. It's, it's a really great way to take uh, erection and orgasm off the table and just enjoy each other's body. Teach your partner how you want your body to be touched and enjoyed. There's so many ways. You know, we call it foreplay what we do before sex, but foreplay is sex. We shouldn't even call it before sex. It's when sex begins. It's not just all about penetration. Right. So couples, I think, have the wrong idea. So they're they're waiting to, and for for sure, men are so focused on that. Sadly. Right. And so. Yes. Right. And women understand that there's so many other ways to be sexual. Foreplay is really the thing that you it is become now. That's the thing that you do before you have before penetration, right? Which is part right. of the sexual act. And so everything that you're doing in foreplay leads up to penetration, whereas sensate focus penetration's off the table off the table for, for just a little bit so you can get to enjoy each other through body contact clothes first clothed then unclothed you're not touching genitals if you get an erection or she gets aroused you're not acting on it now some couples do sometimes they're so aroused by it and then they do end up having penetration and that's great we want that sometimes right because taking it off the table relieves the pressure because really to be sexual you have to be relaxed and you're not relaxed if you think your partner's a sex addict or you think you're you're going to you're going to have erectile disorder or you can't perform, you know? Right. Right. So sensate focus just to clarify is it's non-erotic touching, right? And it's it's time when we did it it was timed, right? Like we each had like 15 minutes. Yes. And the other the giver has to touch the the receiver in the way that then they say we say harder or softer or lighter or on my arm or You got it's it. Really it's it's directed and the other person just has to that just touch. touch. Yes. Yep. And then eventually you're touching genitals and then eventually you're moving toward um, penetration. That's the ultimate goal. But in the, it's just another way of finding uh, ways to be sexual with one another and also honoring other ways of being like when you say, you know, when you were saying about being desensitized, every couple is vulnerable to bed death. Bed death is they stop having sex because they get desensitized to each other. They're not introducing novelty. They're not talking about other positions, other ways that that would be surprising and mysterious and yes. fun with each other. Yes, that, that has I, to be there. Uh, okay, I'm gonna I'm just I'm gonna run this by you and then and then we'll <laughs> then we'll wrap up. But so I was in a relationship once with a man. He was like, "How do you?" In, in the beginning, it was like, "How do you like it? How do you like?" Right? I want to I want to give you the best orgasms like ever, and he was really focused on learning my body and then he learned it. And I literally had the best orgasms I've ever had in my life, but it was the same every time. And I got really bored of it. But at the the end I was like, well, that was great. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so bored? 
but the bottom line is that it was, I always say about him that he's the kind of guy that when he, when he learns how to, I hope he's not listening to this. Um, when he <laughs> learns how to make a steak, like the perfect steak, that is how he cooks that steak every single time. And it's the best steak you've ever had. But the process, you know, I'm not steak. So, <laughs> you know. Right, so there's the desensitization. That's what does desensitization. Porn doesn't do desensitization. It just doesn't. Any more than romantic novels for women does desensitizes yes. her from one yes. more. It's lack of curiosity and lack of... Playfulness and... Yeah you know, just being silly with each other and just role playing and positions. There's so many different ways to be sexual and couples cut themselves off from it. This is so great. It's been such a rich conversation. I think I want to have you back like four more times to have. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> All the conversations. So Dr. Joe, tell uh, everyone where they can find you. Okay. So they can find me on my website, www.joecourt.com. They can find me on Twitter at Dr. Joe Court. And that those are the two main places. Awesome. And you, and you have a podcast. Oh, sorry. I forgot about that. I have a podcast. <laughs> I'm going to be on that in a little while, aren't I? Thank you. Yes, you are. I love it. <laughs> it's a smartsexsmartlove.com. Yes. Great. Okay. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Joe. Thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom. And here's to healthy, happy sex everywhere. Yes, I agree. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.